We live in a fractured world. If you listen to politicians or sociologists or theologians or really commentators of any kind, you have likely been told time and time again that this is a fractured age. We are polarized. We are divided. And it seems to be the case now that people in America cannot not only come to agree on basic things like right and wrong, good and evil, but increasingly, we can't even seem to understand people who disagree with us. To disagree on any of a multitude of topics is to mark yourself off as an enemy, as the other, as someone not just wrong in opinion or in methods, but fundamentally flawed and potentially beyond redemption. And if that is the world, the culture that we live in, it does not seem to be all that much better in the church. We have not only the necessary and inevitable disagreements over doctrine and practice that characterize the various denominations, but many in the broader Christian world has, have come to villainize those who 10 years ago would have been close allies and closer friends. I mean, harnessing the power of a numbered list, as all blogs do, one Christian blog in 2021 resonated with many, analyzing the six-way six fracturing of evangelicalism. And things have not gotten better since then. So what about this church? We all, or at least all members here, we sign the same doctrinal statement. We affirm the same membership covenant. We call each other brother and sister. We share the sacraments and we claim at least to be bound together by bonds of love. Both those put upon us by Christ and those chosen by us in membership. But I wonder, is this fracturing here too? Are there those in this church that you view differently now, that you hold off at arm's length because you differ in what you think is the right response to COVID? Or over the past two elections? Or over what justice in our society might mean? Is this church a part of the fracturing? Are you a part of it? And then we come to our church covenant that we regularly reaffirm and we hear its summary of what scripture calls us to. And for our consideration tonight, we find we will work and pray for the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace with one another. Upon becoming members and occasionally throughout the year, we recommit ourselves to work for unity. As we will find, it's not just something that we made up, but it is something that God calls us to. He calls us to work for this unity and within the bounds of the faith, within the truth, but across all of our other differences of person or opinion or temperament or affiliation, we are given the call to work for unity with one another. And to see that and to see where that comes from, we're going to look at the passage from which this vow is derived. In, in the little pamphlet, it says Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, but I'm going to go rogue and read to verse 7. So Ephesians 4, if you want to turn there, reads, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, then the verse that we're going to focus on, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In this passage, Paul shows that unity in the church, that is you and me working to be united, is a necessary part of our Christian calling. The work of unity is not optional. And the stakes that the passage raises are not small. Do you claim to have one Lord? Then you must work for unity. Do you hold to the same faith? Then be eager for peace together. Have you both been washed by the same baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Then you must be united. And in the short time we have this, with this passage tonight, I am going to ask three questions to hopefully stir us up to this uniting work. And they are quite simply, what is this unity? Why is it necessary to work for it? Or also, where does it come from? It's kind of in there. And what does it look like? So what is this unity? It's important first to note what this unity is not. It is neither indulgence nor indifference because it is all too possible to have a group or a church or a family with no easily visible strife, with a superficial peace, simply because you don't care enough about one another to ever differ or because you never stand in the way of one another's selfish desires. It may be true that iron sharpens iron, but it only happens if you're in contact. And there is a false unity that comes simply from disengagement, from not being involved, from stepping back and away from one another. And that is not what this passage is talking about. Rather, it says, this is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First, it comes from the Spirit. It is that which the Spirit gives. And notice that the passage does not tell us to create it but rather to be eager or to work hard to maintain it. This unity is fundamentally not a thing that we make, but a thing that is given to us. It is a unity within the church forged not by human effort, but by the Spirit of God in all the children of God. And this follows the pattern of so many of the commands throughout the New Testament. God's call to Christians is not to will our own virtues into existence, but rather to live into the gifts that God has already given us to walk worthily of the calling, not the one that you give yourself, but the calling with which you have been called. Maintain the unity of the Spirit which you have been given. There is, after all, one body of Christ. There is one Spirit of God indwelling all believers. So no matter your tensions with others, no matter the ways in which you have wronged them or been wronged by them, you are, as a fact, united with all other Christians as surely as the spirit within you that animates your left hand animates your right hand as well. It is a fact in the grand ordering of things in Christ that all Christians are knitted together. And the command here in this passage is so often in scripture is to be what you are in Christ. You have one spirit. So be united. Be eager to work to maintain that life. And second, it is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Often, especially as Americans, we think of peace in a sense as an open country with no one around. 
Peace comes from freedom, and freedom for us seems to always be freedom from. Freedom from interference. Freedom from entanglement. Freedom from obligation. But that is not the peace here. Rather, this is a peace that binds. Peace ought not to push us away from each other in the mere avoidance of strife, but rather peace must be the chain that holds us close. How could that be? Well, what biblically is peace? Peace in Scripture, among other things, is the restoration of right relationship with God and with others and with self and with creation. It is both living without harm and righting the wrongs that you have done. It is working together to bring about good and plenty and restoring the things you have broken. It is, in short, being a neighbor, being a brother, being a friend. Peace does not ignore difference, but it has everyone bring their own contribution for the common good. Peace does not ignore the real wrongs that we commit or have committed against us, but in love it works towards restoration and harmony. And in this world, Christians at peace with one another means that we can all come to a common table and look one another in the eyes and say, I love you and I want what is good for you. It is to show the culture of heaven and the trials of earth. That is the peaceful unity within the church that we are called to maintain. That is what we will have for eternity given to us and is what we are told to strive for now. So why should we have it and where does it come from? Why, why does the passage take it so seriously? Did you notice after the part that we're focusing on in verse 3, then in verse 4, Paul seems to jump off the track of his argument and begins listing things that there are one of. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's repetitive and it seems disconnected. Why does he do that? Well, because as Christians in God's world, we live lives laden with meaning. Everything we do either tells the truth about God and his work in Christ, or it lies. And the truly Christian life is the life that tells the truth about God. The truly Christian church is the one that not only, but definitely in its doctrine, but also in its very faith and practice tells the truth that there is one body of Christ. There is one spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. To be disunified, to live outside of peace intentionally with other Christians is to lie and to tell the world that there is not one Lord, that there must be more than one faith, that there's more than one baptism, that God apparently is not the one Father of all. Our lives, mundane as they may be, are where God has chosen to have his story be told both to the watching world and, as it says in Ephesians 3.10, even to the heavens. It is, after all, through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
In fact, the whole book of Ephesians from start to finish is largely about God creating this unity in Christ through the gospel. We find the plan in Ephesians 1 to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. In Ephesians 2, we see the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile being broken down, making instead one man from the two who can draw near to God. We hear again and again of the division between God and man that was made by sin, being undone by the work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. We hear of the uniting of man and woman in marriage, which is a picture of the union between Christ and the church. Ephesians is a letter that proclaims to us the great plan of God that there will be peace and unity in Christ, both on a grand cosmic scale and on the level of your everyday life. And it is only through lives that strive to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that we can credibly say that there is one God and that one God, Father, Son, and Spirit works within us and has saved us from our sin. That he is establishing a kingdom where righteousness and love will reign and there will forevermore be the joy of brothers and sisters living in peace and unity. So what does it look like actually? I understand that a sermon like this on a passage like this can very easily devolve into buzzword sounding corporate speak. You need to work for unity, synergize, strategize about how to be together more efficiently. Or it can end with the very true but overly simplified call to pray for God to give this unity, which we should do, but that's not all we should do. I want to avoid that. I also want to avoid getting so over-specific that I miss pretty much everybody. What I can say is that first, because Ephesians is so largely about this unity in Christ that Christ has given to us, all of the commands in Ephesians 4 through 6, which is the section of Ephesians where there are generally commands, are in part descriptions of what this unity in the church should look like. And even within the passage that we read, Ephesians 4, 1 to 7, we find ourselves urged not just to unity, but specifically to humility, to gentleness, to patience, to bearing with one another in love. And all of these are essential aspects of the unity that this passage is talking about. And I sincerely recommend, as an application from this, read through the rest of Ephesians 4 through 6 and find which commands are most needed for you right now in maintaining unity with other people in this church. Which are the things that are hardest for you to follow? Which do you need to repent of? But, if I were to summarize the rest of the letter by way of application, so breaking far beyond the bounds of the section, uh, a few things stand out. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 9 to 16, we are to have a commitment to the church, which includes both a commitment to receive instruction and guidance from leadership and a commitment to serve those who are around you. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, we are to have a commitment to living in the truth, that is, speak truth and live in a way that proclaims what God has already done for you. Stay away from sin because God has delivered you from it. Kindly forgive those who sin against you because God has forgiven you as well. 
Ephesians 5, 1 to 14, we are to have a commitment to love. That means both rejecting all of the false counterfeits of love that are impurity or covetousness and embracing the love that gives self for the good of others. Ephesians 5, 15 to 6, 9, we are to have a commitment to right relationships that are relationships which serve the other person regardless of worldly power dynamics or perceived rights. And then finally, Ephesians 6, 10 to 23, we are to have a commitment to living in the world as it is. That means realizing that all of your daily hardships and struggles and temptations are part of a grand cosmic drama of good versus evil where Jesus wins and where the forces of universal darkness are present in your temptation. It's to know that God in Christ is with you and gives you his great gifts and his spirit to walk in his strength fighting for unity in his army. And that's where the book of Ephesians goes. That's what the unity looks like if we commit to live in it. And so in light of all of this, in light of the fractures in our present society and the grand call to live lives which speak the truth about God and the gospel, what should we do? What should we commit to? Well, we go back to our church covenant and say we will work and we will pray for the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace with one another.